Make sure you're subscribed to Issues Etc. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit that subscribe button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for other podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. It is accepted as axiomatic by so many in science, the idea of natural selection. But if you scratch the surface, you realize that what natural selection actually does is simply replace the God of creation with a faceless, nameless God that is, well, never really described in any detail. But when you hear scientists talk about nature choosing or nature selecting or nature encouraging, they're talking about a God. They call it nature, but it really is, for all intents and purposes, a God. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're going to talk about natural selection and a better way of understanding how species change over time, adaptive engineering. Dr. Randy Galuza joins us. He's president of the Institute for Creation Research He is an MD from the University of Minnesota and a Master of Public Health from Harvard University. And he's author of several books, including Made in His Image, Examining the Complexities of the Human Body. Dr. Galusa, welcome. Well, thank you very much. How is the idea of natural selection defined? Well, you can actually get a dictionary definition, which is pretty standard of what we learn in school, where it would define natural selection as a process where organisms with certain traits, which are good at solving a specific environmental problem, will tend to increase in the population over time because those without the traits would die off in the population. Therefore, as organisms reproduce and then there as they are able to solve different problems, those traits would tend to take over in the population. And supposedly, because there is a competition for resources, those with the best traits would then advance. The problem is people who actually use the idea of definition for a living can't decide on many of those factors that I just defined to you, which we would find in a standard textbook definition. For instance, there's a big debate right now whether death is actually a major component of natural selection, something that has traditionally been in in the whole idea of natural selection. So it sounds like while you can find a bare definition, the devil is in the details because those who actually work with this concept have varying definitions of those components. Yes, exactly. That's a great way of phrasing it. The devil is in the details. Is there really this constant competition between organisms? Is there really a constant ratcheting of improvement of traits over time? Those are two details which there's a lot of debate on. As I mentioned earlier, do organisms actually have to die in order for these advantageous traits to pass on? Or would it just be a type of differential reproduction? In other words, you leave more offspring and offspring that are able to reproduce themselves. So the devil really is in the details. And when you actually talk to biologists who are using this for a living, they will state very, very plainly that nobody has actually been able to come up with an unequivocal definition of natural selection. 
What were Darwin's presuppositions about nature and about life? One of Darwin's major presuppositions with his idea about natural selection is that he compared nature to a human breeder. And specifically in The Origin of Species, he was talking about pigeon breeders. And he recognized that pigeon breeders, when they would select for one trait or another, over a very short period of time, within just several generations, could actually end up with a huge variety of different types of pigeons. And then he, he speculated that maybe nature could do the exact same thing, that nature could select for traits like a pigeon breeder, but instead of over just a few generations, over many, many generations, over multiple decades or even thousands of years, you could end up with creatures which were very unlike a pigeon or even something different than a pigeon altogether. The problem and this leads to a lot of the debate that we've been discussing, is, is this analogy a legitimate analogy? Was it legitimate for Darwin ever to compare nature to a human breeder? Because human breeders have a real brain. They have real volition. They have real intelligence. And many people initially pushed back against this analogy, that this was an inappropriate analogy. Nature is full of living things, but nature doesn't have a brain. Nature doesn't have volition. Nature doesn't have intelligence. Therefore, the whole idea of applying selective ability to nature is inappropriate. In fact, it just personifies nature. And that was one of the major reasons why people initially rejected his whole concept of natural selection. Not only is nature possessing all of those qualities, the pigeon breeder has a goal, one would think, in selecting for certain traits. Did Darwin somehow posit that blind nature has a goal? No, Darwin wouldn't posit that nature has a goal. And so it would, it, we couldn't really say that he would say that. But there is a big problem because when we use the concept of natural selection in scientific papers as a causal explanation for why organisms have one trait or another, just the use of the word selection almost posits, as you say there, that there is a goal in mind, that there is a purposeful objective to obtain. So nobody in and of themselves would say that nature has a goal, that there was something to obtain, but just in the whole idea that you're selecting for a particular trait. And so scientists would use it in a scientific paper that nature selected for, or nature acted on, or nature weeded out. Every time you use a verb which seems to have purpose in mind, you work into your scientific papers this whole idea of a goal-directed activity. And I have to say that Darwin was very happy to actually work that in because he was trying to explain why organisms look so intelligently designed without an intelligent designer, which is very, very hard to do. So when you use verbs, which actually seem to imply that there's a goal in mind, it makes it easier to convey that your mechanism is actually working. How does natural selection attempt to explain the origin of life? Well, it really doesn't in and of itself. Natural selection wouldn't explain it in a purely biological sense. There have been recent papers that have come out. In fact, one just came out in the last uh, two weeks and published, there were actually two, one published in Nature and one published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, in which the concept of natural selection is now being extrapolated far past the biological realm. 
into the realm of the cosmos. In fact, some have used the phrase cosmological natural selection, where they speculate, and that's all it really is, is just a speculation, that there is a type of competition even at the intergalactic level. And there's a type of competition even at the level of non-living biological chemicals where ones that fulfill a particular function better are selected for. So strict biological natural selection would really say nothing about the origin of life, but the whole need to work in a substitute agent and almost a purposeful working agent is now being extrapolated far beyond the realm of biology into the realm of cosmology, into abiotic systems as well. And that's what these two recent papers are arguing for, is that selective abilities are inherent in nature. And this is, from a theological standpoint, so disturbing because it leads to personifying nature as the substitute thinking, operative, volitional agent, which can actually make things happen. So as a good rule of thumb, if uh, the average consumer of popular science is reading a book on science and the author begins to personify nature and use those verbs, that's a red flag. Yes, that is a red flag. That's a huge red flag. And most philosophers of science have noted that as well. In fact, they said that the main reason why Darwin really liked the phrase natural selection even though other scientists said it was totally inappropriate to apply selective ability to nature right from the beginning, is because Darwin said it could be used as a substantive. In other words, a concept, which he was treating as if it was a real thing, like you or me or God, that can govern a verb. In other words, it can actually do things. And the critics at the time said that treating nature like this, this personification, reified, if not in fact deified nature as an operative agent. And so on one hand, Darwin is lauded as a man who can explain the design of nature without appealing to an agent. But anybody who actually studies very carefully what he is doing realizes that he just slips in with the other hand, a substitute agent. And that substitute agent is a personification of nature which he obtains by projecting onto nature selective abilities and therefore by extension projecting onto it intelligence and volition. Dr. Randy Galuza is our guest president of the Institute for Creation Research. We'll talk about natural selection a little bit later, continuous environmental tracking and adaptive engineering on the other side. How does natural selection attempt to explain the diversity of life? We're destined to be Darwin's children this time. This is Pastor Matthew Harrison, President of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. The LCMS operates the second largest parochial school system in the United States. What can you expect from a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod School? There's one race, the human race. And Jesus died for the sins of every man, woman, and child from every land and every nation. Life begins at conception. All life is precious from womb to tomb. And every student, parent, and teacher is created in the very image of God. There's right and wrong, and we know which is which from the Ten Commandments. There are only two sexes, 
Male and female, he created them. Marriage is the lifelong union of one man and one woman. There's such a thing as objective, absolute truth, and it's found in the person and work of Jesus Christ and His Word. To find a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod school near you, visit lcms.org schools. Defending the faith, teaching the truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. Memoria Press's award-winning Latin programs have successfully taught hundreds of thousands of students across the world. Their easy-to-use, step-by-step Latin curriculum provides students with an academic vocabulary, a mastery of English grammar, and strong critical thinking skills. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press. Saving Western Civilization, one student at a time. Criticism. I just had to call in to respond to this week's installment of Never Trump Drivel from Terry Mattingly. Compliments. I love the interviews and insights because they help me battle the slings and arrows of outrageous theology and practice. Clarification. Is there a point where, without baptism, infants go to heaven, and after which time they go to hell if they're not baptized? The Issues Etc. comment line, 618-223-8382. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. We're talking about the weaknesses of natural selection. Dr. Randy Galuza is our guest. He has an MD from the University of Minnesota, a Master's of Public Health from Harvard University. He's author of several books, including Made in His Image, Examining the Complexities of the Human Body. Dr. Galusa, how does natural selection attempt to explain the diversity of life? Well, in explaining the diversity of life, that's actually the mechanism which Darwin is trying to explain the design of life. And so the design is really the major objective of the whole concept of natural selection and the whole, in a broader sense, evolutionary theory. Organisms look incredibly designed. And in fact, this is probably one of the major general revelations that all humanity has ever had. When they look at organisms, they see that they have features that are fitted for their environment. They see that they have features that perform functions like wings or gills or things on fish. And they intuitively sense that these things were made. They know that nothing makes itself, and they know that everything that has a purpose has a maker. So nature has this strong, powerful general revelation. And initially, Darwin is after explaining why creatures look like they are so specifically designed. And he gets to that via the diversity of life. So the scenario would go something like this. As nature presents specific challenges to a population of creatures, Some of those creatures will naturally possess traits which can solve those challenges better than others. And how they got those traits has been extended as a result of random genetic mutations and in order to solve those problems. And the ones that solve the problems, let's say they're struggling for scarce resources, are able to survive and they pass on those traits to their offspring. Therefore, the offspring are better suited for those particular conditions. And as this round of trial and error, naturalism goes on over and over again. Organisms get better fitted to their environment 
which gives them the appearance of having been exquisitely designed for that environment. But as organisms get fitted, one population of organisms gets fitted for a particular environment and another population gets fitted for another environment, then over the course of time, those traits will diverge from each other. And not only will you get the appearance of design for those environments, but you will also get the diversity of life on earth as organisms naturally diverge from one another as they make traits which are particularly suited for their environment. What are the problems with that particular explanation of diversity? Well, there's quite a few problems. First of all, trial and error that doesn't work like that. In other words, we don't really see in nature that random mutations in and of themselves bring about traits which are better suited for environment. In fact, what we're actually seeing in most scientific papers nowadays is that when there is genetic change, it is usually a highly regulated genetic change. So regulated, in fact, that biologists can actually predict that when there is a particular exposure, that given a period of time, and usually a very short period of time, this population of organisms will begin to express specific traits for that environmental change. And when you look at the genetic changes, there is no indication that this is happening randomly. Other researchers are actually calling this natural genetic engineering. So what we really see in real life is that when genetic change happens randomly, a true random change, a copying error, a mistake, or DNA that has been damaged by an environmental factor, that usually leads to disease. That leads to cancer. That leads to something breaking down. Non-purposeful, truly random genetic changes lead to a breakdown of structure and they lead to disease. Genetic changes that we see actually leading towards purposeful adaptations by all indications appear to be regulated in some way. Can natural selection, as Darwin posited it, be observed? No, it cannot be observed. That's a good question because most people, they see there's a challenge to a population of organisms. And then in a period of time, they see that the organisms are expressing traits that are suited for that environment. So that's what we actually observe. But can anyone actually see a selection event happen? No, that's purely an imaginary event which only happens in someone's mind. Can someone actually identify specifically what was selected for? Nobody knows. In fact, there's a major debate amongst biologists. Is it the organism that's selected for? Is it the population that's selected for? Are the genes selected for? Are the gametes selected for? So nobody really knows what is selected for. That's because in reality, no true selection event is actually happening at all. So nobody knows what is really selected for. And in fact, nobody can identify anything in nature equivalent to a human mind, which is actually doing selection. And evolutionists also use a phrase called selective pressures. This is an idea borrowed from the physical realm where nature is actually pressuring a population to do something. And that is also a misnomer because nobody can quantify a selection pressure. So you can see a population change over time, but nobody sees any of the selective events associated with it. What I would suggest as a better explanation 
is rather than viewing a population as passive and being driven by environmental challenges, we begin to see organisms as they really are, active, problem-solving agents unto themselves, where they are not passive modeling clay being shaped by their environment, but organisms are active problem solvers where they can detect environmental changes. Information is sent inward that directs the expression of highly predictable traits which solve those environmental challenges. And so rather than organisms being pushed around by the environment, organisms actually fit and fill and move into environments. And that is a a more appropriate way of seeing them because we can actually quantify the changes. We can actually quantify the sensors. We can actually quantify the genetic information inside, which is naturally and innately adapting to organisms where they adapt themselves to fit their environments. What are the differences between Darwinism and Neo-Darwinism? Well, Darwinism initially was the idea of natural selection. And boy, you these are really some good questions, I have to say. What made Darwinism unique and what he developed initially were multiple important concepts to the whole idea of evolutionary theory. And the first was that nature could act like a breeder, that nature could act like a breeder and nature could be a selective agent. Then Darwin rolled in the idea of Malthus, which nobody was doing before Darwin. So Darwin initially coined the term natural selection. Darwin initially applied selective ability to nature, which nobody was doing. And then Darwin rolled in these ideas of Malthus, which was the struggle to survive. And so Darwin posited that for any one generation, more offspring would be born than resources were available to them. And therefore, there would be this natural struggle for those resources, and the organisms which had the best traits would survive and prevail. And this is how Darwin gave an upward trajectory to his old concept of improving organisms. So selective ability to nature, coupled with Malthus and this competition for resources, was initially the whole idea of Darwinism. Neo-Darwinism came about several decades later with the marrying of genetics, particularly Mendelian genetics, with those two previous concepts of Darwinism that I just mentioned, Malthus, the competition, plus the selective ability of nature. So neo-Darwinism is what most of us are thinking about, which combines the idea of random genetic changes brought about by mutations, coupled with the selective ability with, of nature, which is working on organisms as they compete with one another for those scarce resources. So neo-Darwinism adds the idea of random genetic change to the basic premises of Darwinism. Dr. Randy Galuza is our guest, president of the Institute for Creation Research. We're talking with him about natural selection and its weaknesses. On the other side, do either Darwinism or neo-Darwinism adequately explain the reason for variations within a species or even speciation itself. Essential Exercise for the Christian Mind 
You're listening to Issues Etc. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we are rolling right along in our adventures in Acts with Almost Persuaded, Paul Sails for Rome, A Fateful Decision, Paul's I Told You So, and Approaching Land. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world, specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com, lutheracademy.com. Issues Etc. Book of the Month for October is Martin Luther on Mental Health, Practical Advice for Christians Today. In it, we explore not only the state of mental health among Christians, but also the insights that were already at work in 16th century reformer Martin Luther regarding his own mental health and those of the people around him. Find out more about it at our website, issuesetc.org, or call Concordia Publishing House and order Martin Luther on Mental Health, 1-800-325-3040, 1-800-325-3040. We're talking about natural selection, continuous environmental tracking, and adaptive engineering. Dr. Randy Galuza is our guest president of the Institute for Creation Research. Dr. Galuza, do either Darwinism or Neo-Darwinism adequately explain the reasons for variations within a species or even how species come about? No, they don't. And the reason for this is not because it's just inadequate. And this has been the traditional response by many people who are intelligent design advocates or creationists to neo-Darwinism, is that our typical response would say, well, it's relatively true. Organisms express different traits and they solve different challenges, but it cannot get Darwin all the way across the finish line of making new species because it's just inadequate to bring about that level of change. All it can do with the traditional response was is just affect minor variations upon existing traits, but in and of itself, it can never bring about new traits. You need, you would need multiple genetic changes all coupled together in a highly coordinated sequence and in fact, we would now know that not only do you would need multiple genetic changes, but since most traits are actually influenced by multiple genes, you need multiple genes changing in order to get all of those traits, which just posed such an insurmountable barrier from a statistical standpoint that it was inadequate. I would say that is essentially true if you're dealing with Darwinism, just as he posits it. But I would say a better response is this. Darwinism is a way of interpreting what we're seeing, that organisms make these traits and they change over time. But it's a flawed way because it's bringing into the scientific method a level of mysticism, a level of magic where you project onto nature selective abilities, which it doesn't have. 
And it's fundamentally misleading when we do this from a scientific standpoint, because we don't want to bring in this type of mysticism. But it's even more misleading because it derails us from looking to where the actual ability to change is happening, which is within the organism itself. And it keeps us from looking internally within organisms and looking for mechanisms which would actually enable them to self-adjust or change, which means we're not looking for their sensors. We're not looking inside for the logic, which says when they detect a certain condition to affect a certain trait, and we're not looking for the output mechanisms. So Darwinism not only is inadequate from our traditional argument, but it's a mystical mental construct for interpreting what we're seeing in nature, which leads us down the path of mysticism where we are personifying nature. And then even more importantly, it's not taking us on the right path to look at organisms as the fundamental problem-solving agent in terms of adaptation. In that vein, what are adaptive engineering and continuous environmental tracking? Adaptive engineering is a new engineering-based approach to looking at biology. It begins with certain premises, just like any other theory. It would assume that organisms look designed because they are designed. And therefore, it would also assume that basic biological functions like growth, adaptation, and things like that can be explained by engineering principles. And because it can be explained by engineering principles, we would be looking for those engineering principles as we do biological research. And it would also go with the assumption that when we see an organism performing a function and we see a man-made object performing a similar function, that the study of the man-made object can also guide biological research, that we would expect to find in the biological realm the same type of systems leading to adaptation, the same types of elements in those systems performing similar functions. And therefore, when we embark on our biological research, we have a leg up. We can look for those elements in human design systems and expect to find them in biological systems as well. So it's an engineer-based approach. Continuous environmental tracking is a model of that engineer-based approach that is there to explain how organisms actually adapt. And it assumes that organisms are tracking environmental changes in the same way that a human tracking system would track environmental changes around it. And all human tracking systems use sensors innate logic, and affect output responses. Therefore, continuous environmental tracking looks for those same designed elements within organisms and asks the question, are they there? And if they are there, the second question would be, are they being used as a tracking mechanism? Are they using those mechanisms as a tracking mechanism? And are they able to follow environmental changes? And research indicates, yes, organisms do have those design elements of sensors and logic and output responses. And yes, they are using them to rapidly track environmental changes in a highly regulated manner. Give us some examples, if you would, of adaptive engineering and of continuous environmental tracking. Well, 
continuous environmental tracking, an example of that would be an example in and of itself of adaptive engineering. So speaking at a really basic level, recent research has been done on separate populations of E. coli bacteria. And these bacteria are the ones that are really dominate the human gut. And these distinct separate populations of bacteria were all exposed to identical environmental challenges, not as a group, but as distinct populations. And then when the researchers did genetic analysis on these separate populations of bacteria, they found that they all expressed identical genetic changes, not similar, but identical genetic changes. So all of the populations were responding rapidly in real time with the same responses to those challenges. And it wasn't necessarily a problem of survival of the fittest. We were able to document that these changes were actually happening purposefully. A second example is research that we're doing right here at the Institute for Creation Research on blind cavefish. Cavefish are fish that are the offspring of surface fish. In other words, fish that lived in streams that were sighted and highly pigmented because they live outside. And through some process, they get trapped in a cave or they find themselves in a cave. And then when we find them living in a cave, they're blind. They are not developing eyes. They're not developing pigmentation. In fact, there are numerous changes about the fish as they live in the cave. We were able to document that these fish are able to track the environmental changes very, very closely. For instance, the explanation that an evolutionist would give for why the fish have lost their pigmentation is because the mechanisms which lead to pigmentation have been broken due to random genetic mutations. Well, if that were true, then when we took these cave fish and re-exposed them to surface conditions, they would not develop pigmentation. An adaptive engineering explanation would assume that those mechanisms were not broken due to random mutations, but they have just been dialed down, that they have been regulated downward because they were no longer needed in a cave. And when the fish were re-exposed to sunlight conditions, they would regain their pigmentation. And so we re-exposed the cave fish back to those mimic surface conditions. And we were able to document that within 32 days, they had regained all the pigmentation of a surface fish. So the mechanisms to express pigmentation were not broken. They were in fact dialed down when in the cave and when re-exposed to surface conditions, they could be dialed back up. So how would you make the case that adaptive engineering and continuous environmental tracking are proving a better way of understanding how creatures change within a species? Well, I would, I would give two responses to that. First of all, it's not magical or mystical, which is better science in and of itself, because I am not projecting onto nature selective abilities, and I am therefore not projecting onto it volition and intelligence, and I am not using that in my scientific papers as a causal explanation, which skips over a large amount of design features within the organism. If I were to write up a paper and I would see a population of organisms and I would see an expression of traits, and then I would write in my scientific paper that the reason why we see these traits is because they were selected for, 
or because nature acted on, or even worse, because nature favored this population. I would say that's bad for science because now you have used these magical expressions, which really have no explanatory power whatsoever, to be your explanation in your scientific papers. So I would say eliminating that in and of itself is good for science. Second, I would say we're on the right path to actually looking to where the problem-solving systems and elements actually exist, which is not looking outside of organisms to nature and projecting onto nature these magical abilities to favor, but to look inside of organisms and to do serious scientific research to say, now there's a specific condition. Where are the sensors for that condition? How do these sensors operate? How is data transmitted inward from these sensors? How is that information processed? How is that information then effected into specific traits which are suitable for those environmental challenges? I would suggest that is a far better approach to practicing biology, to where you are asking specific questions, looking for really tangible, identifiable elements in your systems. You're not making up any magical selective events which you would insert into that, but you're not leaving anything out of your explanations either. You're not leaving out your sensors. You're not leaving out your data transmission. You're not leaving out any of your processing. So you actually get much better science by identifying real things, real genetic changes that can actually be quantified. Are there people in the biological professions and research who are completely aware of the glaring weaknesses of the Darwinian or neo-Darwinian model, but nonetheless continue to offer it as kind of a hand-waving explanation? Yes. There are scientists who are aware of this. In fact, numerous books have recently been published, one within the last 15 years by a philosopher of science, Jerry Fodor, who has um, subsequently passed away, and his co-author, Massimo Piatelli Palmarini, and the title was What Darwin Got Wrong. And the whole premise of the book was Darwin's use of natural selection as a substitute agent and his projection of selective abilities onto it as well. In addition to that, a scientist from UCLA, Greg Graffin, has also pointed out the glaring weaknesses of this problem. He says, but we continue to use it anyway, because really they have no other alternative explanation to replace it with, and neo-Darwinism does the heavy lifting of being an anti-design explanation. The random mutations point to a mechanism which no rational engineer would ever use, randomly breaking things, so no rational god would ever use that, and then the hit and miss trial and error process of their idea of natural selection is also a non-purposeful process. So natural selection carries the weight of coming up with a non-engineered explanation for why organisms look so highly engineered. If there was a viable alternative explanation, I suspect that many scientists would go to that because people like Greg Graffin, Jerry Fodor, and others as well have identified the mysticism which is inherent to selectionist explanations. However, they continue to use them because out there in the naturalistic realm, 
there is no suitable explanation which can do the heavy lifting that neo-Darwinism can do. Finally, how would you advise a Christian who wanted to enter the sciences? Well, go into it with your eyes open. There is no doubt about it that, particularly in the biological realm, you're going to be bombarded with a realm of naturalistic thinking, which assumes that everything happening in life, even consciousness, your mind, and all of that are the products of natural processes. These things can't really be demonstrated and they can't really be proved, but these will be the basic assumptions of it. You'll also be going into a system where you'll face some hostility. Darwinists are hostile to, some of them, very hostile, and will actually act on their hostility. They're very hostile to the idea of an intelligent designer, that things were created and that things in biology operate for a purpose, and that purpose can be identified. And it looks like it's the product of an agent. This hostility will be out there and it will be dismissed. So go into it with your eyes open that these things will be there. But this would be my advice. Continue to go in and work to be the absolute best student that you can possibly be. Be that A student. It makes it very hard for people to argue with a student who is excelling in all areas, academically, particularly in biology. Second, it is not your job at that time while you are taking your undergraduate courses to necessarily take on your professors and necessarily point out all the weaknesses in their explanations. In fact, I would advise against doing that. I would suggest uh, leaving that alone for the time being, become the best student that you could be, go on, be a graduate student, and then if necessary, after you get your PhD, take on these major issues. Once you're through the process, once you are really an expert, a subject matter expert, and can talk intelligently about them. But while you're an undergraduate, it's not really your job to take on your professor. Your job is really to learn as best you can and express it as best as you can. Dr. Randy Galuza is president of the Institute for Creation Research. He has an MD from the University of Minnesota and a Master of Public Health from Harvard University. He's author of several books, including Made in His Image, Examining the Complexities of the Human Body. You'll find a link to the Institute for Creation Research at issuesetc.org. Click Talk on Demand Archives. Dr. Galuza, thank you. Well, thank you so very much for the invitation. When we come back, we will continue with part two of a conversation with Dr. Rosaria Butterfield about modern culture's lies, about sexuality, faith, feminism, gender roles, and modesty. We'll start with the question of how we got from homosexuality being normal to transgenderism being normal. Dr. Stephen Saunders, professor of psychology at Marquette University and author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month, Martin Luther on Mental Health, Practical Advice for Christians Today. 500 years before mental health professionals started to do this, Luther was telling people, be aware of what you're thinking, be aware of how you're behaving, change them so that you can help yourself with your depression, with your anxiety. Learn more about Martin Luther on mental health at issuesetc.org. This is Kevin Hildebrand, cantor at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, inviting you to our campus in November for the annual Good Shepherd Institute Conference, November 5th through 7th. 
This year's conference includes addresses by Brian Spinks, Paul Grimm, and James Busher. And there's excellent music, including a Bach cantata with the Seminary Contarai and a hymn festival at St. Paul's Lutheran Church. For complete details, visit ctsfw.edu gsi. Education and edification. You're listening to Issues Etc. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. The Gospels report to Jesus saying some rather shocking things. For instance, in Luke 14, he tells his disciples, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. How can Jesus say such things? What about some of the other more difficult teachings of Scripture? Do you have questions about them? Well, we answer many of these in the October issue of The Lutheran Witness. Pick up your copy today at cph.org witness. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the world from a Lutheran perspective.